David Livingston. Um, who, real quick, just want to kind of get a feel for the crowd. Who was there a year ago when I did the fall retreat? Okay, sweet. I, it was awesome hanging out with you. Um, it was, we, that was when we did like the long kind of tailgate thing for the, the, the Michigan-Minnesota game. You remember that? And it was like we waited forever to see what was going to happen. Michigan won. I'm sorry. But, and then I preached at like 1130. Remember that? It was like midnight. We were doing the last worship set. We were like, oh my gosh, this is really late, but really awesome. Um, it's going to be really good. If you guys have not been to a fall retreat, you have to go. They are awesome. Uh, real quick, who's here for like first or second time? You're like new to Saul, in the room. Yeah, welcome to Salt, okay? We're, I, I'm super glad you're here, and it's so crazy. So I went to school at Iowa State University. Um, actually, went to school uh, at the same school with Dre. We both ended up in Iowa City for a while, and then now he's here, and I'm up here. It's crazy, it, the things that God does. But we, me and my friends, we sat at this university, Iowa State, at a salt company that was like, like I don't know, three times bigger than this, twice as big as it, whatever. But it was like, it was bigger than this, and it was like crammed into this little gym. And I remember like walking in the first night, and it was like, there was like loud worship music. I came from like a Presbyterian church, so I was like, I don't know like what that is. And I came in, and there was like a dude like covered in tats, like throwing down, like he was in a hardcore, he was like throwing down in the back, like that was his like worship moves or whatever. And I remember like coming in to Salt Company being like, oh, this is not like what I've experienced people who like Jesus doing, Okay. And uh, I remember coming to know Jesus my freshman year. Changed my life. Like, totally flipped my life upside down. And I remember sitting with some of my friends who'd also had their lives totally changed because we met the real Christ. And I remember we just were praying that God would do something like this. Like, I'm amazed that you guys are in this room. Like, amazed. Because when I went to school, like, this wasn't here. Like, there were no other salts. It was just one. And we just began to get on our knees and pray and said, Jesus, we actually really think you are great. We think you are amazing. We think you are, like, the thing we want to leverage all of our lives for. And if you would, like, use us to just, like, move places and start stuff and tell people about Jesus, and you would start to, like, do something through that, that would be an amazing use of our lives. And so the fact that I get to come here and just, like, see that, like, God is doing that here, I don't ever want to be someone that's not like deeply thankful and amazed by that. So I'm amazed that you guys are here. And I'm amazed that I get to talk to you guys about Jesus. Because he's freaking awesome, all right? If you guys don't know Jesus, he's rad. And there's this awesome story tonight, all right? Open up your Bible, Luke 19. I'll be honest with you. This is a story I have never spent time studying before. I've read this, and it was like, I've, I've heard it before in church, and I'd never, like, spent, like, I want to teach on this, but this is like, Drake was like, this is what you're teaching on, and I was like, all right, man, let's go, but I love this story now. Have you ever noticed about the Bible, like, sometimes you read stuff, and you're like, all right, this is kind of cool, but you spend time with it, and you're like, no, this is awesome. That's what this passage of the Bible is for me this week, Luke 19, verse 28. You guys are doing this come and see series, and this is like a moment where Jesus is like finally, he's been doing some parables, he's been doing some miracles, and he finally arrives like at Jerusalem, kind of coming to this like massive capital city, bringing his entourage with him, and this is what happens. Luke 19, verse 28. And when he said these things, so he's like ending all these parables, this teaching, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering it you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. 
So those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and they throwing their cloaks on the colt. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And then it says this, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives. Okay, so just you guys have probably, who's been to Israel? Yeah, no one here. Okay, it's like, there's like this, this city on a hill, Jerusalem. And then there's like this valley, and on the other side is like this, this Mount of Olives, right? And so Jesus is like with his crew, and they're going to go like down this like very visible pathway up to this city. And it's like, this is like the, this is like the journey that kings would take to go into Jerusalem, and so verse 37 is, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, a whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen. They began to say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now some of the Pharisees were in the crowd. Now if you don't know what these look like, picture like homeschooled kids with like robes on super religious, super nerdy. They're getting like tossed around in this crowd and like they don't fit at all. It's like just a bunch of like frat dudes and like sinners and they're following Jesus around and like the Pharisees show up and they're like, no, don't do this. And so they tell Jesus, like tell people to stop saying this. Like they're worshiping you, Jesus. Like tell them to stop. This is wrong. This is messed up. And Jesus answered them, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. And he like drops the mic and then continues on his donkey ride, right? Like Jesus is awesome. And that's, that's our story for today, right? It's just quick like window into Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem. And you're in this series, Come and See. And honestly, this is a great series about Jesus. Because I think that almost anybody in that crowd who had met Jesus or had an encounter with him, that's what they would have told to their family and their friends. Like, this is what the woman at the well told her whole village after she met Jesus, right? He's like, hey, I know he's Jewish. I know he's like a rabbi and this like religious teacher, but I'm telling you, this guy is different. He knew every single thing about my life, everything. He told me about all of it, even the things I was most ashamed about, and he still moved towards me and loved me. This is probably what people said after they watch him cast demons out of people, right? They're like, dude, you know crazy Carl? And they're like, yeah, that dude's crazy. And they're like, yeah, you won't believe it. He's not crazy anymore. Like, Jesus healed that dude. And they're like, what are you talking about? Be like, Carl's wearing pants now. They're like, whoa, like he's healed, right? Like, that's crazy. That's what people would say. Come and see this dude. This is probably what people said when they heard his teaching, right? Jesus, crazy teaching, telling stories about the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom that costs you everything because it replaces everything in your life, and yet simultaneously, you can't actually buy it even if you give up everything you have. How it was actually those who knew themselves to be the most unworthy of God were actually the people who were closest to him. And this is probably what people said when they saw him do his miracles, right? Turning water into wine, feeding 5,000 people walking on water, people just saying, like, you have to come and see him. And what's true is if, like, Jesus was, like, alive and walking around in the flesh today, and he's walking down, like, some road in Minneapolis, and all of a sudden, like, students start to hear about it, the same thing would happen. People would flock to him. 
And as word about him has spread over the last years in this part of the story, it's like person to person, village to village. He'd come into these towns and there'd be thousands of people who would just like literally flock to him. Like his first kind of like outing was in a house. Remember how that, how that worked? They were like in a house, the house was busting at the seams. And so some dudes were like, we'll just lift the roof off. They lift the roof off, lower their paralyzed friend down, right? Jesus is like, this is probably not safe. We should probably do some houses anymore. So he's meeting in like these fields with thousands of people. And now Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. And there's this massive group of people who are all kind of following him. And they're trying to like tell everyone, like, come out, you have to see Jesus. And if you're here tonight and you're just unfamiliar with Jesus, like, you're like, I'm not really, I'm not a church kid, I'm just here. This is like all weird for me. Like, but I met someone, they were kind of cool, so I came. You need to know that Jesus is unlike anyone you have ever met. Like, he's not like anyone you know. He's not like any religious leader you've ever heard of. He is not who you would expect him to be. And but maybe, maybe you're here and you actually feel familiar with Jesus. Maybe even this story, you're like, dude, I get it, Palm Sunday. Like, I had the branches when I was a kid. Like, I actually got the Awana reference, right? <laughs> like, you're like one of those people. And maybe, in fact, you're so familiar with Jesus that he actually has started to feel normal to you. And you need to know that if you're like this with Jesus and you read stories about him and he feels normal to you, it means that maybe you, maybe you know him but you've forgotten what he's like or maybe you actually don't know him yet because Jesus is not normal. He's not familiar. You're maybe like someone that's standing so close to a painting that like while it fills your vision, like you, you're like, I'm looking at the painting, but like you're standing so close you can't even see what you're looking at. But this, this story is an invitation for us to look at Jesus. And so let's do that, okay? Jesus is going towards Jerusalem. And as he gets towards the outside of the city, sort of like overlooking the city, he grabs a couple of his disciples, and this is what he says, okay? We're just going to go back over this again. He says that, hey, go into the village in front of you, and this is what he says. There's gonna, on entering it, you're going to find a colt, which is like a baby donkey, okay? <laughs> Literally, it's like a small donkey, um, on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those, they, they went and they found it just as he said. Now I want to just set the stage, okay? Jerusalem is a really important place in Israel. It's like, it's the capital of like social influence, political power. It's like the seat of even like kind of the Roman occupation at the time. Like Jerusalem is everything. It's like if you live in Minnesota, it's Minneapolis, right? Like there's nothing else in Minnesota. Like this is it. Like it's this city. I'm not from here. Maybe there's other cities, but all I know is Minneapolis, right? It's like, this is the place. That's Jerusalem. And what's interesting about this moment is that these crowds who've been following him, one of the things they've been doing is trying to make Jesus king. They've been doing this all the time. Like Jesus actually at one point, like he's literally getting crushed under the crowd. They're like trying to like lift him up and enthrone him over them, but they're like almost like killing him because they're like crushing him and he somehow like escapes out of this. Like this is the thing Jesus keeps doing. They want to make him king. He slips away. But now he's standing at the edge of Jerusalem. All of his crowds and disciples are with him. He's going to enter the city. And some very interesting things begin to happen in this story. Okay, first very interesting thing. I don't know if you caught this. He seemingly steals a baby donkey so he can ride it in a parade. That's weird, okay? Like, we can just be honest. That's a very strange thing. We should probably talk about that, okay? So let's talk about that. First of all, his instructions. Did you notice what Jesus says? He says this, find it. 
untie it. Bring it here. That's all he says. Okay, first of all, the disciples, zero questions about this. If Drake told you to go find a donkey and untie it and bring it, you'd have many questions. The disciples, they have no questions at all. Someone asks you why you're untying it. This is what he says to tell them. The Lord needs it. That's even weirder. Okay? <laughs> why, what are you doing? Why are you untying that? The Lord the Lord, he needs this. <laughs> like, that's so weird. The Lord does not need a tiny donkey. What is going on? I think of it like if Secret Service was like running up to my front yard and I'm in my front yard playing with my, my two and a half year old Silas and then they like run into my garage and they like take my tricycle and they're like huckling like out with this thing. And I'm like, what are you doing with my tricycle? And they're like, the president, he needs this. And they just like keep going. And I'm like, what? And then like later, like it's on like C-SPAN or whatever because like the president's only on C-SPAN. And you're like watching this and like, you see him, like, riding this little tricycle, right? Like, through this, like, his legs are, like, up by his, like, ears, you know? Like, it doesn't fit him right at all. And it's like you're watching, like, the, the pan, like, the, the, the pan, and, like, you just see his head come, like, the bottom of the screen. Like, that's all you can see because it's so short. That's literally what's happening with Jesus, all right? Like, this is a tiny donkey. Jesus is riding on this. He was probably taller before he sat on it. It's purposefully subversive, the thing Jesus is doing. Like, and we're going we're gonna to talk more about it, but I just want to real quick just pause on this. A young donkey was still a really valuable thing for a Jewish family, right? And so there's this weird, this is like a side story. This isn't the main point of the sermon, but I just want you to notice this. It's an important thing for a Jewish family. It's probably one of the most valuable things they actually had. Like this, this animal, this beast of burden that could do a lot of things. Don't you think it's strange that Jesus doesn't tell them to like knock on the door and ask them if he can use it or even like offer to pay for it or something? Instead, Jesus just has his disciples get it. Like, I was thinking about that this week, and it's just it's weird. The only explanation that they give the owner is the Lord have need of it. Listen, this isn't the point of the story, but here's one of the things I've been thinking of when I've been reading the Bible this week. Does Jesus have that kind of authority in our lives? Where, like, he just says, hey, I want this to happen. I need this. And our immediate reaction is, yes, Lord. Like, does Jesus have that kind of authority in your life? I was reading this one pastor, and this is how he says, he just says, as creator of the world, I mean, Christ was entitled to everything this owner had. And when he needed the service of the cult, the owner offered the animal without asking questions and without delay. That's a really interesting way to respond to Jesus, don't you think? The disciples gave no explanation, no motive or reasoning behind their quest. Instead, they simply said the Lord had need of the animal, and that was all that was necessary. Here's a question. How much does Jesus have to say to you when he's trying to get you to give up something that has value to you? Like, how long does the conversation have to be? How many questions do you feel like you need to bring to Jesus and have him answer with clarity before we actually just give Jesus the thing that's already his? I love this story because I just feel like it's this like little window into this of it saying like, oh yeah, that's the way you're supposed to respond to the Lord. You just do it. Well, here's, a, here's another question, okay? This isn't in my notes, but do you, do you guys have something in your life right now that the Lord has like asked you to do or like asked you to give up and you haven't? 
Why? Who, who do you think Jesus is? If you think Jesus is the Lord, you know what you should do. And so I mean, this is like a side thing, but if, if that's you in the room and you're like, I actually know what Jesus wants me to do and I am really slow in my obedience to him, I would say, hey, don't do that. Go and be obedient because Jesus actually is the Lord. Okay, so back to the sermon. Okay, his disciples get this animal and they bring it to Jesus and the kind of animal actually was important, Okay. So I know like we read stories like this, it's like, all right, he's riding a donkey. But what do kings ride on when they enter a city? Just, yeah, what? Horse. <laughs> horse. It doesn't rhyme with donkey at all. Horse. A war horse. Like a massive white stallion. Like what you would expect to happen in this moment because there are thousands of people around Jesus like chanting his name, telling like stories about him. They're literally laying their clothes out in front of him. And you would expect like this massive white stallion like whinnying up on two legs with like the sunrise like, you know, silhouetting Jesus in the background. And Jesus created horses so he could have found one of those. He doesn't. He goes a different direction. He gets a donkey, but not even a full-grown donkey, a colt. And some of you right now, I know you have in your head little Sebastian, okay? I know that. Like, that's what you've already implanted in there. And so what you're thinking is like, wow, I get why he would want to ride on that. That is a majestic creature, okay? Listen, that's a mini horse, full-grown mini horse in his prime from a TV show. Jesus rode in on a not-yet-riding, not-yet-ready-for-riding donkey, okay? So really picture this, a baby donkey. That's what Jesus is riding in on. This was its inaugural voyage. Okay, I used to think that the reason that uh, no one had ridden on this donkey was because this was like a pure donkey. Like, no one's ever put their butt on this thing. It's amazing. It's for the king. No, <laughs> it wasn't old enough to be ridden. Like, this was the first time anyone had ever attempted this. And by the way, I think that's why his disciples had to set him on it. Did you notice that? Like, it doesn't say Jesus gets on it. It says his disciples set him on it. What did that look like? Like, how many people did it take? I don't know, but these are the questions I ask when I read the Bible. Regardless, okay, they eventually get this thing. They put their coats on it. They get Jesus balanced on this little guy. And as Jesus starts towards the city, the crowd goes wild. The crowd loses it because one of the things that's happening kind of behind the scenes is that Jesus is actually fulfilling this like kind of obscure Old Testament prophecy and people, they know their Bibles pretty well. And so when Jesus is doing this, that starts to kind of click in their head and they go, oh, we've read about this before. There's going to be this king that's going to come and bring salvation to us. It's going to come into Jerusalem and he's going to do it in this kind of weird, weird like way we wouldn't expect. It's going to be actually on a small colt. And so what happens is all these people start to shout at the top of their lungs and tell everyone to get in, out of your houses. Like, come out, come out. Like, join this celebration. The king has come. This is amazing. And as Jesus goes further, it gets louder, it gets bigger. And they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples, right? But he answers them and he says, no, listen, no, no. Actually, if they don't do this, if they don't, with their lives and their, their articles of clothing, if they don't heap praise and glory on me because of what's happening right now, the very earth itself, the rocks themselves will actually cry out on behalf of what's happening here. Jesus says it's actually right and good to do this. 
So if you're, if you're just in the crowd and you're going like, what is the right response to Jesus, right? That's it. Jesus is like, throw your clothes down, worship. Like, that's it. That's the right thing to do. And when the people, when these religious leaders come to Jesus and say, Jesus, tell these people to not be so fanatical. Like, tell them to calm down a little bit, please. Jesus says, no. No, they should be doing that. The proper response of humanity in this moment was actually to lay down their lives and their property and everything before the feet of this king. And that's actually happening, and it's amazing. And Jesus says, this should be happening. But what's the most crazy thing about this whole story is that every single person in this crowd who's heaping worship on Jesus is doing it for the exact wrong reason. They're all doing the right thing. And every single one of them is praising Jesus for the wrong thing. Because there's two trajectories that are happening in this moment. And one of them is the crowd. It's this path up the hill to Jerusalem. It's the coats. It's the praise. And this is the path that the world can see, can recognize. It makes sense. It's the path of glory that gets everyone out of their houses. It's, it gets a crowd going. It gets people shouting. And that makes sense. But then there's this other trajectory that starts with the transportation, right? It doesn't fit the moment. And it doesn't fit this moment because it's actually a very different trajectory and it's actually a different path that Jesus is actually taking. You see, the crowd wants to lift Jesus up to this pace of honor and privilege and they they want to actually walk with him all the way up the hill to the center of the city, take him off this tiny donkey and put him onto the glorious throne of this world. And they thought that because Jesus was going to do this, because they'd seen his power, the dude walked on water. The dude took a couple of fish and was like, here, everyone eat it. And they're like, if you can do that, you can take over the Romans. If you can do that, you can sit on the throne here. And so because they were confident Jesus was going to do that, that is why these people thought he was worthy of their praise. But the real reason that Jesus was worthy of their praise in that moment, the real reason that they were actually should have been praising Jesus was because he was intentionally choosing to not take that path. They were seeing the complete wrong thing because you see Jesus was choosing this lowly animal because it actually represented the path that he had chosen. This scene of Jesus coming into Jerusalem is actually meant to be like a really haunting scene for those of us who've read a little further ahead in our Bibles. Because if you read a little further ahead, you know that actually instead of leading him to the throne with shouts of praise, that this exact crowd of people would join up together later and instead usher him to a cross. Like literally, like just a few days later, this whole group of people, instead of heaping praise on him, they will spit in his face as he walks by. And instead of shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they actually will shout out over a whole multitude to crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And they would. And they did. And this whole crowd, instead of laying robes down at his feet, they would instead rip his robe off of him, and a couple of soldiers would gamble over who would be able to take it home. He didn't get a throne, he got a cross. But it's interesting, because in that moment, these same words were probably ringing out, like, come and see, (laughs) right? But for a very different tone, like in this, like, mocking kind of 
tone. Like, come and watch the sufferings of this man. Like, look at what a disgrace and a failure this man is. Look how he has gone to the very bottom of the world. Look how he can't even save himself. Like, we thought this was a powerful person, and he can't even come down off the cross. The stories about this king must be largely overblown and ridiculous, and in fact, we should just crucify him. Here's the the question that I've been thinking about from this story How do you define greatness? Like you, in the seat. How do you define it? What are the things that happen in the world that you look at and you're like, that is amazing. That is glorious. That is incredible. Because when Jesus was coming down the hill towards Jerusalem, like everyone was there and they were like, this is great. We love this. But what's fascinating is when Jesus is dying on the cross, most of the entirety of the crowds are gone. They're there on his walk up to the hill, cursing at him, spitting on him. But when he's actually there on the cross, almost everyone is gone because it's a really gruesome scene. And the only people who are left are mostly there to mock him. We know his mom was there. We know John was there. We don't know if any of the other apostles really were. You see, everyone is looking for glory. And it's, it's why we follow people I think it's why you all use TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat. Like, you've got friends, you've got people, you've got influencers, that we want greatness. And there's something in us where we want to be near it, we want to touch it. And you have to understand something tonight. If you're going to come and see Jesus and you're going to be like, what is Jesus like? You have to understand Jesus is the greatest person that's ever lived. I mean, it's not a question. Like, he is the greatest human being that's ever lived. But what's hard about Jesus is it's his greatness actually comes in the exact opposite way of everyone else that we see. Everyone else that we can see and know and we can see that greatness. Jesus' greatness comes in the opposite way. Because you see, Jesus actually could have conquered his enemies through power and force. Like he literally could have done that. Like Jesus could have literally been like, I'm not going to ride a donkey or a horse. I'm going to create a dragon out of angels. And I'm going to ride that into the city. <laughs> like, Jesus could have done that. And there'd have been like more people there, like, that's pretty cool, right? He could have done that. He actually could have conquered his enemies through power and force, but instead, what Jesus chose to do is he chose to lay his lives down for them. Jesus chose to lay his life down for his enemies. And he chose to be a friend to them. He chose to love them at the very cost of his life. And what's interesting, especially when I talk with guys, sometimes this happens, is you talk about the love of Jesus, and sometimes people can just turn off, right? Like something about Jesus loves me, like it feels fluffy, it feels soft, but you have to understand that what we're talking about, this love that Jesus is displaying, is Jesus doing the hardest thing that a human being could do. Like, you might look at someone in, like, a CrossFit competition and be like, literally, what he's doing is so hard. It's crazy. Like, the toll that takes on a body, it's crazy. No, what Jesus was doing was the hardest thing that a human being could do to actually lay down his life, not because he had to, but because he was willing to. And the people he was laying his life down were the very people who were shouting to kill him and crucify him. Listen, Whatever you think Jesus is, 
One, he is humble. He is meek. But Jesus is not weak. Jesus is the strongest person that's ever lived. Jesus is great. Jesus is glorious. You have to understand that because you see every single other king, every single person in the world that we would look at and say, that's great. We get that. We get that kind of greatness. Their kingdom is established by the shedding of the blood of their enemies or the conquering over of these other kind of empires, whether they're, they're business empires or literal empires, but the kingdom of God is actually established by the shedding of the king's own blood, Jesus' blood. Normally, everyone comes together like these kind of lower people in this hierarchy of a kingdom. They come together and they sacrifice and they bleed and they toil and they sweat in order to lift this person above them to put him on the throne. And they actually go without so that the king can have plenty. But Jesus Christ is not just a king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he doesn't just have a name that's worthy of honor and respect, but it says that because he did that, because he didn't choose the horse, he chose the donkey. He didn't choose the throne, he chose the cross. The Bible says that it's actually because he did that, because he was strong enough to take that upon his shoulders, that it's because of that that he's actually been given the name that's above every name. That the name of Jesus, every single knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, whether you are in heaven or on earth or under the earth, every single knee will bow before Jesus because of what he did and who he is. Here's what I'm saying. There's this picture in this moment of Jesus' life where it feels like the crowds get it. And they're literally in front of Jesus, laying their lives down at his feet. But they're doing it for the wrong reason. And you, as someone who is on the opposite side of the cross, after Jesus has risen from the grave, we're sitting here thousands of years ago, you actually have an opportunity to see clearly why Jesus is great today. He didn't just use his power to destroy all of his enemies to establish his kingdom. Like, he didn't do that. And you know what's crazy about that? The reason he didn't do that is because you are his enemy. That's who you are before you meet Jesus. That's our, us in our natural state. Like, we're literally the people who are like, on one moment, off the other, right? One moment, Jesus, you're awesome. Next moment, crucify him, right? It's like, that's not his friend, that's his enemy. But he used his power to sacrifice himself for them so that those who were his enemies could actually be called his friends. Listen, I'm telling you, you want to serve this king. I'm telling you that you want to serve this king. You want to be near this king. I'm telling you that everything in the world pales in comparison to knowing this man, Jesus Christ. If you had been given everything in the world, I'm telling you it would be an easy and a good trade for you to give up all of that just to know him. Because this isn't someone who shows their glory and their war medals or their conquest trophies. This isn't someone who shows how valuable they are by how many people are underneath them. But actually, his glory is in his scars. His glory is in his torn hands and his feet. It's in the ring of wounds around his eyes and ears from the crown of thorns. Everyone worships greatness. And if you're in the room, you worship greatness too. We want to be close to it and we want to be changed by it, but the question is, what does true greatness actually look like? Because the, I don't know you, but the thing I know is that whatever you think is great, you will orient your life towards that. You will. Like, 
you're not actually this like autonomous person that's going to do exactly what you want. You are going to find what you think is great in the world, and you are going to throw your life towards that. You're going to sacrifice yourself towards it. And it may be a person, it may be, it may be a spouse someday, it may be an idea of a family, it may be an idea of a career. Like it may be like literally like I'm going to create like the perfect fashion line that's going to be so rare that like everyone's going to buy it. Like whatever it is, like you're like I'm going to do this thing and that's where greatness lies. But what you think is truly great, that will be the thing that you throw your life and sacrifice towards. And the answer of the Bible and the answer of heaven the answer of thousands and thousands of angels, and actually the answer of this new song that's been being sung in heaven from the very day since Jesus rose from the grave for the rest of eternity, the answer of that is it tells us that the greatest man or true greatness is the man who humbled himself beneath the entire world. Is the one who actually said no to the throne so he could go to the cross. whose bodies now bear the marks of his love. That's what the Bible says true greatness looks like. And as you sit in this room and as you sit at the University of Minnesota and you look out at the world, there are many great kings and many great men and women who have carved out a great name for themselves through power and strength and conquering over others. But there is only one person who has ever existed who is strong enough to carve out a place in heaven for you. You can't do that. You can be as great as you can possibly muster, and you can never be that great to earn yourself a place. But there was one who was so great that he could sacrifice his life and actually carve out a place in his kingdom for everyone in this room. That is stunning greatness. And as people who are in this room, this is what I think. I think that you're, the, you're here because you actually want something to live for that matters. I think you're tired of small ambitions that don't lead to anything of value or worth in the world. And so I want to ask you, when you see Jesus, who do you see? Like when you see Jesus Christ on the cross, and just put yourself in that little small crowd and just look at him. Who do you see? Is he looking at you? Is he looking away? What's he doing? The Bible says that that's true greatness. And the Bible says that of everything in the world that actually Jesus Christ is the one being who's great enough to lay your life down and sacrifice for. And the Bible says that actually for you to take your life and throw it down, to take your cloak, all your things, and throw it down and sacrifice to anyone else or anything else would actually be a waste of the glory that God's put inside of you. But when you do that for Jesus, God himself says, no, actually that's so right and so good that if they don't do it, the rocks themselves would. What is the answer of your life as to what you think true greatness is? Because here's the thing. I, I'm here tonight. We're hanging out. I don't actually care what you say is the answer to that. Because so many of you could say the right thing. You'd be like, Jesus, God, the Bible. My question is, what is the answer that your life tells the world what you think true greatness is? 
And does your life answer that question in a way that when people get around you, they go, oh my gosh, this person actually thinks Jesus is the greatest thing in the world. And I know that because of the way they're living their life. What are the things in your life that you tell people to come and see? Maybe it's another way to ask that. This is a great series, Come and See. And I think the reason I love this series is because this is really what salt is all about, right? It's about people who have met Jesus. It's about people who found him to be unlike anyone else they've ever met. It's about people who've had their lives changed by him. And, and those people, what they do is we go back out into the world, into campus, and we grab our friends, we grab people off the street, and we just say, you have to come see this guy. You have to meet the Jesus in this book. He's turning the world upside down, and he's turning my life upside down. When I was a freshman at Iowa State, I made a decision that I was going to do everything in my power to try to live my life, to display to the world that Jesus Christ was the greatest thing I knew. I do a terrible job of that. Like, really, I do a terrible job. But every day I wake up, that's the commitment I make to myself and to Jesus, is I look at him and I go, Jesus, I actually believe you are great. And I try to get my life to line up with that in some measurable way. And if you're here tonight and you see Jesus like that, I want to invite you not just to come and see him, but I want to invite you to be like one of these people that say, I want to figure out how to yell at the world with my life and my words to come and see this king and follow him with me. And I'm going to pray that you'll become more like those people alongside me. Let's pray. Jesus, I love that right now in the city of Minneapolis, there are a couple hundred, few hundred strong group of people who are crammed into this. I mean, just whatever this place is, Lord, <laughs> we're crammed in here and we are opening your Bible and we're singing songs to you. And Jesus, I'm so glad we're doing that because if we didn't do that, God, the rocks of Minneapolis themselves would start ringing with praise for our Savior and Jesus. You have created us to be the lead singers of your creation in worshiping you. You've given us a glory and a status in this world so that we are actually meant to be the people who belt out praise to you with our lives, with our voices, with our time, with our energy. But Jesus, we live in a world that tells us you are not great. But God, we come face to face with you and I, for one, I believe that you are. So Jesus, would you help us worship you tonight? And God, if there's people in this room that there is something else that is sitting on the throne of their heart, God, I just pray that you would remove it and you would sit there. That Jesus, you would show yourself to the people in this room that it actually be through your scars and your humility and your love and your giving up your life for them that they would begin to see that you're the, actually the treasure they've been looking for their whole life. Help us worship you tonight in your name.